Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. everybody, Eric Garneau here with the Nerdalogs presents Your Stories Podcast. I, it probably hasn't escaped your notice that this is Halloween week, so I thought I'd pull out a compilation of some of our spookiest stories from the first five years of our pod. Now, we originally put this together back in 2016, so hey, if you want to get really scared, think back to your state of mind in late October two years ago, and then think about where we are now. Uh, that's definitely spooky. And speaking of that, duh, get out and vote next Tuesday, please. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with some more stuff about that. Uh, we've also got a live show coming on Sunday, November 18th. I'll have more details on next week. And then just one live show left for me as host of the show after that, my friends. Uh, the end of the year has some cool stuff coming, so don't miss it. And now, everybody, please stay safe. Get some sweet-ass candy this Wednesday and enjoy. Oh, 
I remember, don't worry, worry, worry. How could I ever forget? It's the first time, the last time we ever met, met. But I know the reason why you keep your silence up. No, you don't see me. Doesn't show, but the pain still grows. Stranger to you and me. Do, 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 do. Lights High number 32 The Trouble with Brothers Goofus stared into the mirror (laughs) He hated what he saw in it A ratty old football sweater He wanted to wear other shirts But his mom only ever bought him football sweaters And they all seemed to get torn and blemished After just a few wears Messy brown hair All snags and cowlicks Dull empty eyes Yellowed teeth. At lunch, his best friend, his only friend, Scotty Ne'er-Do-Well, had asked him why he was so glum. Goofus hadn't known what to say or where to even start. It was just getting to be too much. It seemed like no matter what he did, it was always the wrong move. If the teacher asked a question, Goofus shouted out the wrong answer, and it was usually incorrect. He never passed to any of his teammates in basketball, and as a result, they no longer passed to him. He habitually stayed up too late and missed his bus. He'd become a pariah at lights high, just like he had always been. But this time, he'd tried real hard. Or at least he thought he had, yeah. Uh, Goofus had just shrugged at Scotty and Everduel's question, prompting Scotty to shrug back and offer him another hit off his joint. Uncharacteristically, Goofus had declined. The question had unsettled him. Looking into the mirror that evening after school, Goofus knew the answer. Gallant, he whispered hoarsely. <laughs> All his life, his twin brother Gallant had been everything he'd tried and failed to be. Successful, polite, continent. <laughs> it sometimes felt like maybe Goofus's mistakes wouldn't have seemed so stupid or severe if Gallant hadn't been right by his side making the right choice over Goofus's wrong one. It had been that way since they were children. Goofus would eat too fast and get a stomach ache, while Gallant would eat his food normally and get Goofus's dessert in addition to his own. <laughs> Goofus would crash his toy airplane while Gallant played carefully and was now able to sell his childhood toys online to collectors. <laughs> Gallant listened to the ski instructor and had a good time, while Goofus impaled his thigh with his own pole. <laughs> and today, 
Today had been the worst. Goofus had loved Violet Alden for as long as he could remember. The Aldens lived up in the hills with their rich grandfather and always hung out together, but Goofus had carried a torch for Violet from the moment he first set eyes on her. This year, he decided it was time to do something about it. He was going to ask her to the non-denominational motivational sock hop social. <laughs> the trouble was, he didn't want to mess this up. He'd spent weeks practicing in the mirror, planning how he would start the conversation and rehearsing what he'd say to any of her possible responses. And this morning, between first and second periods, he'd asked her. Hi, Violet, he'd said, successfully avoiding referring to her as ho or girl. <laughs> Do you have a minute? Sure, Goofus, she had replied cheerfully, setting his heart a tremble. What's up? Goofus had taken half a moment to jar and ether the butterflies in his stomach, choosing his words as carefully as a lepidopterologist, pinning and mounting his specimens. I was just wondering if you'd like to go to the sock hop with me, he said. Nicely done, he thought. I didn't mention my admiration for Stalin or my testicular eczema. <laughs> The non-denominational one, she had asked. Yeah, that one, Goofus had said, his hopes and his gorge rising. Oh, she'd said, her beautiful brows knitting. I'm sorry. I'd love to, but I can't. Gallant already asked me. Outwardly, Goofus had merely stared. Inside, he had screamed like the winter wind. You see, Violet had said apologetically, you, Goofus, waited until the last minute to ask me. Gallant asked me as soon as the sock hop was announced. That had been this morning. Now Goofus's hands gripped the sides of the sink as he looked hard into his reflection. It wasn't fair. It had never been fair. Even as babies. Gallant slept through the night. Goofus wriggled out of his onesie, peed on it, then got his head stuck between the bars of the crib. Even at birth, Gallant had crowned head first while Goofus had tried to burrow into his mother's small intestine. <laughs> His knuckles whitened as he stared at his face. Gallant's face. Gallant, he whispered again. His hands moved to the taps, turned them on. Hot water gushed. Gallant. He plunged his head into the sink, held it there, came up gasping, gasping his brother's name. He plunged his head in again, but lost his nerve. He came up, fighting for air. His reflection was worse than before. He looked like a freckly drowned rat. He angrily ran his fingers through his wet hair, yelped at a tangle, and in a fit of rage grabbed his mother's hairbrush and yanked it torturously through the snarls. He clawed at his rebellious hair with the brush, his scalp protesting over and over again as his vision blurred with tears. When he could see again, Goofus recognized the face in the mirror. Gallant, he whispered again, this time in awe. Numbly, Goofus walked downstairs. His mother caught sight of him as he entered the kitchen. Oh, Goofus, what are... Oh, she paused. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I thought for a second you were Goofus. <laughs> Goofus stared at his mother. Well, that sweater certainly isn't helping. I'll buy Goofus some new ones, and you can swap your grubby ones out with those. Goofus remembered to breathe. His mind raced. Like... Like I always do, right? <laughs> his mother smiled. Yes, sweetie. God, your brother's a fucking dumbass, isn't he? <laughs> Goofus just nodded. His world was crumbling, crumbling beneath him. Dinner's almost ready, his mother said, turning back to her meatloaf. Will you go tell your accident of a brother to come downstairs and set the table? She looked more closely at him, and Goofus winced from her gaze. Gallant, are you feeling all right? Would you like a cookie or something before dinner? Or some scotch? <laughs> Somehow, Goofus found his words. I, I'm all right, thanks. Uh, I'll go get... 
I'll go get Goofus. Are you sure? His mother asked, looking at him with more concern than she ever had in his life. A Vicodin, maybe? You look tense. <laughs> oh, you know, he improvised. Just one of those days. Goofus made a real tit of himself today, you know? Total embarrassment. His mother nodded in understanding. He's a real turd, he is. <laughs> well, if you change your mind, just give me a wink and I'll put some Baileys in your milk. Goofus nodded again and turned to head back upstairs, his heart pounding. Everything made sense now. Sweet, perfect sense. He could be as happy as gallant. All he had to do was comb his hair, write a note, and murder his brother. <laughs> he took another step up the stairs. If Goofus left a note claiming he'd run away, no one would go looking for him. Not as long as Gallant was still around. And no one would ever expect Gallant to do away with his own brother. Gallant was the perfect child. It was the perfect crime. He reached the top of the landing. His mother would love him. His father would respect him and probably stop whipping him. And best of all, he'd get to go to the sock hop with Violet Alden. Goofus grabbed a heavy bronze paperweight off of the hallway bookshelf as he walked past it. His head was light, his blood singing. He knocked on Gallant's bedroom door, soon to be his own bedroom door. Coming, came the reply. Gallant opened the door and did a double take. Goofus? The paperweight, the paperweight hit the carpet with a muffled thud. Gallant, he whispered. Then their lips were locked, their hands mussing one another's... Their hands mussing one another's perfect side parts, their football sweaters mashed against one another until it became impossible to tell who was Goofus and who was Gallant. The end. Ben Riggs, guys. So I'm Ben Riggs, and I am here to tell you about the six weeks in college when I thought Cthulhu was real. So, for I went to school in Massachusetts. Uh, for those of you who've never been to Massachusetts, people in Boston tend to react to friendliness with hostility. They become very suspicious. So uh, when I moved out there as a 19-year-old, I had a very hard time making friends. And I took that loneliness and I took it to the library. At the library, I of course went to the card catalog and after I had done my work for my class, I typed Necronomicon into the uh, library search. <laughs> and an entry popped up and I'm like, well, that's interesting. Then I looked and I saw it's in the specials collection. I had to make an appointment to go visit the book. They gave me special gloves, a piece of paper, a single pencil, before ushering me into a room with locked crates containing tons of books and bringing out this thin gray volume filled with Arabic script. I, I pick it up, I look at it. Oh, it's all, it's all Arabic-y, I can't read. Oh, there's an English introduction, hallelujah. And the English introduction laid out a story wherein the author, L. Sprague de Camp, says that he purchased this in Baghdad in 1976, and that the first three translators of this volume mysteriously died. The third was the only translator they ever found any sign of after he started translating it. They found his teeth on his ceiling. Um, so he 
being a Ellis Brock DeCamp being a strict atheistic materialist is like, well, this is all totally bourgeois. Um, there's no chance that this is true. So, uh, you know, I'm going to publish this and just put it out there, even though a friend from the State Department tells me that the uh, Iraqis are releasing this to the West as a form of academic terrorism. They figure that uh, you know various and sundry academics in American Ivy League colleges will try to translate it and meet the same horrendous fate that the Iraqi translators did. And this blew my mind. This is the moment when I failed my intelligence role. And I was like... The, the Necronomicon predates Lovecraft. That the Necronomicon is real. Cthulhu is real. Oh my God! So I did the only thing I, th- I thought I could do. Like it actually, it prompted an existential crisis. As I'm like, well, if Cthulhu is real, what does what does that mean for me? So I joined the Kung Fu Club. <laughs> now. I, I break bones like it is my job. My hand looks like a creepy... No one will be able to see this, but a creepy, crawly spider. This finger won't bend anymore. I crushed three vertebrae and a teeter-totter. A 120-pound girl fell on me, and I broke two ribs. Me joining the Kung Fu Club is not the most effective way of stopping Cthulhu. Um, but I joined the Kung Fu Club, and, the, and these Kung Fu, geek, Kung Fu geeks were very forgiving of me coming and flopping around their practices and rehearsals uh, and sparring. I stopped going to the Kung Fu Club when a, uh, a gentleman, he, he, he was very advanced, and we're sparring, and he's letting me hit him, letting me hit him, letting me hit him. I'm like, this Kung Fu thing's pretty easy. Hit, 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 hit. And he just takes me and boom, throws me down, breaking a toe. <laughs> And that was the last time I went to Kung Fu Club. Now, this is uh, two years after I first got email. So after about six weeks of just kind of trembling in fear at night, thinking, oh, my gosh, God exists and he hates me and he's going to eat all of us one day, um, I finally go to the interwebs and I, I type Cthulhu, Necronomicon, El Sprague de Camp in the primitive search engines of the day. Um, and I find a very handy Necronomicon fact that explains to me that this is a total hoax. <laughs> and that El Sprague de Camp, who is a biographer of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, purposely only printed 398 copies of this garbage Necronomicon so that it would end up in specials collections of libraries. <laughs> So then I joined the theater club and made some friends. Um, and that is uh, that's the story about me, I guess, failing a couple roles. And uh, that's my story. Thank you. This is Patrick Winninger. Hey. Uh, so one thing that the theme... Uh, kind of brought to my mind, as well as this time of year, is how much I loved haunted houses when I was a little kid. And even though I grew up in a pretty smallish city in East Alabama, we had a lot of really great options. There was uh, the JCs would rent out uh, this abandoned strip mall, and it was really scary. Uh, there was a haunted hayride that always had these really f- totally false middle school rumors that someone died during it. <laughs> and when I was 11, uh, me and some neighbor kids even made our own haunted house. And after five years of bombing and improv sets, that is the production that I am the most ashamed of. (laughs) 
But when I was in eighth grade, when I was in eighth grade, there was rumors of this really terrifying haunted house somewhere way out in the county in this place called Smith Station. And I naturally really wanted to go. And finally, we convinced uh, me and some friends of mine from church, we convinced uh, one of their moms to drive us out there. And it was a long drive through this pine woods, total pitch blackness. And finally, we get to a corrugated iron warehouse with no windows. And I'm thinking, that's a great sign. <laughs> we get inside, and keep in mind, this is the middle of nowhere. It's packed. Huge line. I'm like, that's another good sign. And there's a big spooky banner with like horror movie blood dripping font that just says hell house awesome i'm on board this is great <laughs> finally we get to the end of the line and this dude in a black robe is opening uh the door to the rest of the warehouse and i'm pumped you know i'm ready to get my skin ripped off by freddy krueger i'm ready for jason to jump out of the bushes and i'm i'm ready for a community college theater student to chase me with a blunted hatchet but we get to the first scene and none of that happens we get to the first scene and it's just these two women sitting at like a restaurant table and one of them is sobbing and she's saying i i, I don't know what to do I'm too young to have a baby. And the other, the other woman says, hey, some of you know where this is going. The other woman says, it's okay. You can always get an abortion. And I'm like, what the fuck kind of haunted house is this? That was it. That was the scene. And we just go, this, uh, this guy in the black robe is like telling us about the wages of sin and his death or something. And we're like, what are you talking about? We, all these scenes about kids drinking or doing drugs or having premarital sex. And it wasn't scary at all. There were no undead people. There were no escaped inmates. But admittedly, the next scene they took us to was terrifying. A guy's alone in a room. Uh, he's drunk and he's talking about how he's depressed. And he reaches for a cap gun, and I hear an audible gasp from all the other customers around me, and it goes pitch black, you hear a gunshot, spooky red lights come up, and there's fake brains and blood all over the wall. And I was looking to get scared. To be fair, I came here to be terrified. And I'm 13 years old, and I just saw a simulated suicide, and I'm wondering what the fuck I just witnessed. The final room... Uh, the, the black robe guys, you know, he's going on about sin and then they lead us to this final room and there's a stage and it's got these, uh, orange streamers coming out of a fan. I guess it was supposed to be Hellfire and there were people kneeling and there, you know, the woman that had the abortion is, you know, why did I kill my child or something? And the guy that killed himself is like, why did I do that? And, uh, the devil comes out, the fucking devil comes out, and he's like, this is what happens when you do not follow Christ. <laughs> and that was it. But it wasn't the final room. They open the, the door to the next room, and there's very brightly lit. There's card tables everywhere, and there are adults uh, sitting there with notepads and children on the other side uh, weeping. And the people that I came with bolt. They go right to the exit. And I'm led to sit down in front of this very uh, pleasant uh, middle-aged woman. And there's a card with questions in front of me. And I'm thinking, this must be a survey. It is not a survey. <laughs> it is an invitation to the most awkward conversation that I've ever had in my life. Because the first thing that she asked me is, oh, 
how did you like the haunted house? And I'm 13, so I just look at the floor and say, oh, I don't know. And then she asks if I was scared. And I tell her that, oh, well, you know, I thought the suicide part was pretty messed up. And <laughs> if I had an understanding of the context, uh, concept of poor taste at this point, I'm sure I would have said that. But then she asks me, are you saved? I should point out at this point, uh, I'm Roman Catholic. And uh, in most parts of the country, that's not a big deal. But in a Baptist-themed haunted house in the middle of the woods in East Alabama, it is a huge disadvantage. Uh, so I tell her, I don't know what saved means because I don't. And she uh, then asks, well, do you know for sure if you're going to heaven? And I say, no, I don't know that for sure because I don't. And... Uh, so, it, this kind of goes on for a while, and I try to find some common ground. You know, I was like, well, I, I was confirmed last year. Does that count? I'm told that it does not. <laughs> and in order to avoid the uh, simulated uh, orange streamers of hellfire, uh, I have to accept Jesus Christ as my personal savior. And I don't know what that means. Uh, because that was never covered in CCD. So I've been sitting here for ten minutes, and this lady will not let me go until she's certain that my soul is safe. Finally, the adult that drove us comes and pulls me away. We pile into the van, and we drive back home to Opelika. And as a kid, I felt really cheated because, you know, I wanted to be scared. And I thought that meant being chased by zombies and, like, getting splattered with fake blood. But I realize now that what I got was real true terror. It was it was an adult fear that sticks with me to this day. And that fear is being trapped in a room with a stranger who won't let you out until you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. So looking back, I can say that 13-year-old me was totally wrong. That was the scariest fucking haunted house I have ever been to in my life. Thank you. Hell is real. Good night. Mr. Chris Cornell. I'm sorry, Chris Crotwell. I'm not a person that's always comfortable with silence. I will just fill it. Uh, It is... It is really, it has always been really hard for me to sit in a room with someone and not say anything. (laughs) He knows. He knows. Uh, he's, he can't. He can't make it out to the back porch to have a cigarette without me sneaking out of my room to bother him. Um, and uh, but I think that a lot of the closest, the times I felt closest to people in my entire life, uh, were just sitting around um, in that space after the words run out. Uh, that space between the things you can say or have to say. Uh, April twenty seventh, two thousand eleven. Uh, I was sitting on a women's toilet with my head in my hands with everyone else that worked in the health food store where I worked uh, while a tornado destroyed most of the town where I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, And the things I remember most about that weren't the conversations because we couldn't really have any. We didn't have anything to say to each other. There were no words there. We walked outside and you sort of look at whoever's around you and just nod. It's like, yo, fuck. Uh, and it was a really strange four or five days. I mean, it took them a long time to put town back together, and it still doesn't look uh, anything like what I remember. I moved shortly after. 
Um, but the moments that really stick with me are uh, me and two of my friends. I made it to their house. I couldn't get home um, because all the roads were full of people's houses. Um, and, uh, and my car was running out of gas. So we had to eat everything in their fridge because it was all going to be bad the next day. And we weren't sure when we'd be able to get a hold of food worth eating for a while. Uh, and so I just made uh, chicken on the grill with pineapple and sriracha. We call it tornado chicken. I like to cook it at least once a year now. <laughs> but um, but we just we just ate there, sort of staring. It's like five adult people. Just all you can hear is cheering, and uh, all you can hear is chewing, and we're just staring at the floor. And you feel really close because there's just nothing to say. Just just no reason. Nothing you could say could make the situation any better, and none of us are going to be able to make any sense of it for a long time. And I think some of us are just now getting to a point where it makes any sense to see something, to have seen something like that happen. The next day, I made it back to my house, and we had everybody over, uh, and just built a big fire in the backyard, and drank beers, and it was just crickets, and chainsaws, and crackling fire. And that's it. And that's all that we needed. Just being able to look across a yard at somebody and say, Hey man, we're both here. And I think silence is super overrated as a way to be really, really close to people. And it's important to remember not to fill it. And I love everybody in this room. Uh, even the ones I haven't met yet. Because your story is this family. Um, and I just want everybody to know that when you get to that place... Where the words run out, and you just want to sit in your living room and listen to your air conditioner for four or five hours, just so that someone else can share that silence with you, call me up, and I will sit on that couch and not say a fucking word, I promise. (laughs) And I'll be perfectly comfortable doing that, Uh, because I love you guys, and silence is definitely a way to feel close when... You just don't need or can't find the words. Thanks, guys. Ms. Julia Weiss, everybody. Oh, hello. Um, I'm Julia Weiss. Uh, When I was a child, I uh, consistently had pretty terrible dreams. And often these dreams would involve uh, someone coming to kill me or my family. Um, But I always would uh, protect us. And because as a girl growing up in this America, um, I was exposed to maybe too many sexual messages. So the way I would protect me or my family would would be by uh, giving pretty highly sexual neck rubs. guys um, and usually there were, there were four main uh, nightmares that I would have in which I would have to give these sexual necros uh, oftentimes I would have dreams where fawns F-A-U-N not F-A-W-Ns would come uh, to, to harm me and mine um, and I think this is because 
I watched that BBC Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, yeah. and you know Mr. Tumnus wanted to fuck Lucy. <laughs> you know that, and don't tell me that that Bond did not want to do the nasty with that little British girl. He, and, and that got in my brain, and so he was always coming, and it was always very predatory, and so I... I his creepy goat horned oh body, these neck rubs, and then we'd be fine. He wouldn't hurt us. I seduce him. I regularly had to seduce. Uh, I regularly had to seduce Frankenstein's monster. I can still feel. I don't think I've had one of these dreams since I was eight, but I can still feel his like sweaty prickly neck which felt like pube stubble <laughs> like hot wet pube stubble um, another another major bad guy who I had to seduce uh, often was Hitler uh, who was surprisingly keen on the touch of an 8 year old Jewish girl uh, <laughs> But there was one group of predators that I knew I could not seduce, and that was aliens. <laughs> when the aliens would come, I hid. Uh, I knew not to try to seduce them because they were not human. Fawns, they're at least part human. Frankenstein's monster is human parts. Uh, Hitler got his dick wet. <laughs> I knew I had a chance with them, but aliens, aliens were unknown. I don't even know if they had dicks. And I, I remember the alien dreams started after my parents were watching some fucking miniseries. I feel like all TV in the early 90s was Rescue 911 or miniseries. And I don't even know what it was, but this woman like, heard these sounds, and she looked out her window, and there were weird lights outside. She was like, oh, what are these utility men working on at this hour? Then one of them looked up, and it wasn't a fucking person. It was an alien. And she was like, oh, my God. And I, I, my stomach dropped when I watched it. And she, like, ran downstairs, and she hid between, like, a fucking cabinet in the fridge or something. And then, like, you just see, like, this alien come into the house... And she's she's nestled down there, and you're like, bitch, you're done. <laughs> this alien knows, and he did. I say he. I shouldn't. I don't. <laughs> I now in my enlightened adulthood, I like to think that aliens have at least progressed beyond gender specific pronouns, <laughs> um, or maybe beyond gender. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> the point is, is I was I had this crippling fear of aliens, and the most common dream I had about aliens uh, was inspired by that. They would I would know they were coming, usually because these weird little cinnamon bun like or like ringworm like these little white spirals in the sky, tiny ones. I would see them everywhere, and I knew those were alien spaceships, which meant I had to hide. Um, even though I knew that hiding was futile because that fucking woman was found. Uh, and then, like, they're always probing. Probing is a big thing with aliens, and I knew I didn't want that. Look what happened to Lucy. Um, but uh, I, would, I would hide next to this lavender bush that was next to the, the house I grew up in, 
and I would be hiding there, nestled between lemon balm and mint, under sweet-smelling or lilac. I may have said lavender. I meant lilac bush. And uh, I would be, like, nestled under there, and I would see these aliens. They were always, like, white and translucent, which is maybe a Hitler metaphor. And they would be, like, stalking around through my mom's garden, and I'd be like, stay quiet, and they won't find you, which I'm realizing a lot of, like, Holocaust scenes, <laughs> which I'm going to need to work on in my brain later. But I, I, would, I was hiding, and then all, out of a sight, I wasn't even looking at an alien would come and find me. And in my daily life, my waking hours, I would try to preempt these attacks and make it so they wouldn't happen by telling my neighbors that I had already been abducted by aliens and had survived. I would walk through my neighborhood saying, oh, I was abducted by aliens last night just to get that out into the universe so that maybe the aliens wouldn't come. Because I can't seduce them, so I have to trick them. Because in our country, those are the two ways you deal with problems. (laughs) And so far, it's worked. Um, I... I haven't had to confront an alien in my real life so far as I know, but I did a couple weeks ago. I was walking with my nephew, uh, who is seven years old and a perfect human, Um, and I looked up in the sky and I saw one of those little swirls, and I was like, oh, fuck, it's happening. (laughs) But when you're a caregiver for a child, you can't show your fear, especially when that fear is a weird-shaped cloud that vaguely reminds you of a nightmare you had as a child that was based on nothing real. So I kept my composure, but I had this moment of, like, fuck, if the alien comes, how am I going to protect my nephew because I know that motherfucker doesn't want a sexy back rub. <laughs> Thank you. James D'Amato. Alright, uh, you can probably discern a lot about my personality based on how I misunderstood the uh, fingers crossed idiom when I was a kid. Uh, I don't fully remember the circumstances, but when I was about five, uh, my mother explained to me what vampires were. Uh, now, I could tell this was a crucially important piece of information, despite the fact that she seemed to half-remember what she was telling me. So, a vampire is a type of bad guy? Yes. And what do they look like? Well, they wear long black capes. Like Batman. Uh, My mother paused for a minute. Actually, yes, a lot like Batman. But they're bad guys. Five-year-olds have to synthesize a lot of information, and the idea of a bad guy being allowed to wear a cape really didn't gel with my understanding of how the garment worked. Well, they also have really pale skin. Like the Joker! Uh... Uh, Vampires really don't have anything to do with Batman, James. (laughs) They're monsters who bite you and suck your blood. And they can turn into bats, and they can turn you into a vampire if they bite you. I don't want to be a vampire. And sensing my fear, my mother told me, it's okay, they're afraid of crosses. Uh. 
What if I don't have a cross? She said, you can always do this and make a cross with your fingers. But you don't have to worry about that, James, because vampires aren't real. Now, it is. it took me an embarrassingly long time before I learned that when people said fingers crossed, they were looking for luck, not warding off the undead. <laughs> is bizarrely supportive of my delusion. (laughs) For example, traffic now is terrible. Fingers crossed we should be able to make it home in time. Obviously traffic is bad enough. The last thing you want is to be waylaid by a vampire attack. (laughs) I can't find my passport. I haven't looked through the drawers yet, though. Fingers crossed I'll find it there. Yeah, I can't imagine an atmosphere less conducive to finding things than a life-or-death struggle with the Nosferatu. (laughs) I've been interviewing all over, fingers crossed, one of them will turn into a job. Okay, this one is a little bit harder to justify, but I can't imagine anyone wanting an interview with a vampire. still going. I'm not going out on the pun. But sadly, we don't live in a reality where everyone is in near constant vigil against vampires, which is really a shame because my mom was wrong about one thing when she taught me about vampires. They are real, and they are everywhere. See, the problem with vampires is they're seductive. They offer you something that you think you want, and they don't look like monsters. My first encounter with the vampires when I moved to Chicago. The only job that I could find in the city at the time, because you'll remember, like now, the economy was pretty terrible, was to be a street canvasser for a major gay rights organization that shall remain nameless. Canvassing is just as awful as you imagine it to be. You know, you know how uncomfortable it is to be canvassed. It is just as bad on the other side. Uh, on top of that, you're outside in Chicago, which is a hospitable human habitat maybe two months out of the year. Yeah. Uh, and due to the hotly contested nature of my chosen cause, I got slurs and hateful asides hurled at me at least once a day. I actually had my life threatened so many times working that job that the significance of an event like that lost all meaning. Uh, now, I could endure it because at first I was representing a cause that I truly believed in. And that kept me warm, you know. But when winter came, it brought in a new canvassing director. Uh, and he was the kind of corporate alpha male asshole who you thought you would never run into doing nonprofit work. I had—I actually had a meeting to explain to my boss why there were some days where I was only doubling quota. Uh, horrible man. <clears throat> Uh, and I would come home every day physically and emotionally drained. And some days I couldn't bring myself to speak. This obviously put a tremendous amount of strain on my relationships, as well as my fledgling comedy career. And although comedians are supposed to suffer, suffering is only really useful in retrospect. <laughs> you need to have the experience to write jokes, but you also have to have the energy to tell them. So I couldn't help it. All I could do was come home and sit on the couch and stare until it was time for me to go to bed and have nightmares about how my horrible job was. And one day, my boss pulled me into one of his meetings and asked me why I pulled a team of new canvassers off the street when the temperature dropped below 9. The answer, obviously, is that it is illegal for people to be out there when it is 10 degrees. Uh... 
he said to me this, You know, these newbie canvassers aren't going to make it, so uh, we have to get what we can out of them while they're around. So I put in my two weeks after that. I was working a job where I was literally using people for what they were worth and then throwing them away just to survive. And I didn't quit when I had a new job lined up like I wanted. I quit at a time that meant I had to use my savings just to make rent, and I didn't eat as much because I didn't want to be a fucking vampire. In creative fields, there's no real defined path for success or even a stable life. You just sort of have to make it up as you go. Like, the general consensus in the improv sketch community is that you work for free until somebody's willing to pay you a pittance. And then you get really excited about that. Uh, that is probably one of the worst career ideas imaginable. Um, but you're probably going to end up doing something that you hate. And it's going to take stuff from you every day. Until you get to do what you want to do for the rest of your life, somebody is going to be draining your life force from you. So my advice to people who are in similar situation like myself is keep your fingers crossed. Bye. 
has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening.